in celebration of the presentation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in celebration of the upcoming resurrection and the global ramifications of his victory. We pause from our series in Second Samuel to consider these amazing events. This is the first of three sermons. Our old covenant reading coming from Isaiah in chapter 63, perhaps a very odd message, a very odd scripture passage to commemorate the presentation of the king. But this is the word of God, Isaiah in chapter 53, the first six verses. By inspiration of God, moved by God himself, the Holy Spirit, Isaiah records this, beginning with a question, a rhetorical question. Who? Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have treaded the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury, it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury. And it will bring down their strength to the earth. The evangelist Matthew, in Matthew in chapter 21, records the presentation of the glorious king. But the same spirit that moved Isaiah, pointing forward to the majestic Christ, so does Matthew write. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, When they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest! And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, 
But the Word of God stands forever. And by His Holy Word is the Gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the account of Christ's procession into the holy city of Jerusalem is without a doubt one of the most important declarations of the Christ on par, I believe on par with his resurrection, simply because it dramatically symbolizes the overall purpose for his coming, for his incarnation. And that purpose was to declare his universal sovereignty over men and nations. The ramifications of this declaration, of the fact of his kingly majesty, was to subject all nations under him. Because he, coming in this way, was declaring to the world that he was lawgiver, judge, and king. In fact, a careful study of the scriptures. You know, we read this, and this is a great child's story. You know, Jesus riding on a donkey. But actually, he's riding on two. He's riding on the mommy and the baby. And they put them together in some form of fashion, and they put their clothes on them, and he rode on both those two animals. That was significant. And perhaps some who were astute in Jerusalem at that time would understand its significance. Because only the judges were riding in the Old Testament upon donkeys. And those donkeys were white donkeys. And I would even suppose that Jesus asked these disciples to get me a white donkey and her colt. Because I am going to declare to you that I am both the judge and the son of the judge. Because that is what the judges of Israel used to ride upon. They rode upon the donkeys which were white. And their sons, the judges' sons, rode upon the colts. Of those donkeys. So this might have been very significant to the astute individual that was watching Jesus ride victoriously, ride conquering as the conquering king into this holy city. And that declaration came with a goal, that came with an application, it came with a purpose. In light of the situation that Christ was entering into, the situation of fallen rebellious man. Christ's kingship purpose was to reorient the world Godward. And that had to be accomplished on two fronts. The first was through the resurrection of the body of Christ, whereby they would be equipped and groomed as the army of God. That is what the new birth is all about. Through that first stage, the enemies of the gospel, through the army of God, declaring the kingly majesty of the Christ, through that first stage, the enemies of the gospel then would be vanquished. Throughout that New Testament age, as long as the church remained faithful to the commission and to the Christ of that commission, that would be accomplished. The entire focus, object, theme, and goal of the Old Testament scripture is on the person, work, and victorious conquest of the Lord Jesus, all anticipated when he would come and fulfill that purpose. It would be fulfilled in the New Testament and it would now be displayed for all to see in his triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem. The significance of Christ's glorious procession into the holy city is nothing less than God's absolute declaration that Christ will and now has actually become the enthroned king. And this is what the psalmist was speaking of so often. He was speaking of the enthroned king, anticipating the enthronement of the Christ. Because this was all testified of in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And Matthew understood that. 
He understood exactly what the triumphal entry represented. He saw it as the imminent enthronement of Yahweh as king in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets proclaimed would come in reigning power over his people and to subdue the entire global order so as to reconstruct the culture according to his righteous will. And isn't that what we all want? Righteousness, justice, mercy, and peace in every place, among every people, in every institution, in every political realm and governmental realm and legalistic realm. We want righteousness everywhere. Not one stone should be unturned without it being turned over and declaring this has to be conforming to the righteousness of God. So understanding exactly what the triumphal entry represented Matthew draws from and even quotes from a number of Old Testament passages and ideas, especially those of the Royal Psalms. And there are the Psalms in the Scripture which are titled the Royal Psalms. And we know that from this context. In particular, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And by quoting these things, Matthew is connecting the Old and the New Testaments together as one seamless garment. The anticipation of Christ's kingly declaration was declared in the Old Testament when the prophet said, Save now, Hosanna, I beseech thee. O Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. This is quoted by the evangelist. And this was probably the very same psalm that the Lord on that Passover evening, led the apostles in at the Passover supper. Just before his crucifixion, he led them in a hymn. And by his choice of, most likely, Psalm 118, the Lord was even there anticipating and pointing forward to his victory and his subsequent coronation as the conquering king. Now for a moment, let's consider the importance of the entrance into Jerusalem. The importance of this procession. Christ's entry into Jerusalem was the historical testimony of the universal, overall, and comprehensive sovereign kingly authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at this time, in the Roman Empire, it was customary for the Caesar or the general of Caesar's army to ride prosperously into the city after a conquest. And that procession was only for the conquering general of Rome or the Caesar of Rome. And yet Jesus Christ, putting his finger in the eye of Caesar, is declaring himself to be the king over all kings and lord over all lords. So this was a dramatic, dramatic event. And that is probably why they asked the question, who is this? Jesus for three and a half years has been doing miracles and they're saying, who is this? In other words, they're saying, this is not a Caesar. This is not a Roman conqueror. Who is this? On a donkey, not on a a glorious horse, not with with chariots, but with people with, with palm leaves. Who is this? It's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. 
So Christ's entry into Jerusalem was the historical testimony of the fact that Christ is the overall universal and comprehensive sovereign king over all kings. And once coronated as the king, as it happens at his ascension 40 days later, he then is qualified, coronated, and sends the Spirit for the purpose of salvation, but also of the purpose of damnation. Now, to interpret the gospel only as the good news for the salvation of the elect is to misunderstand exactly what the good news is really all about. Now, yes, it's good for us. And yeah, it's good news for us. It is the good news first because Christ would save sinners by his mercy. Through the atoning suffering that he had to endure, he would save us. And that's a good news. But it's also good news, secondly, because Christ will then destroy the wicked by his just law and by that comprehensive rule. He will then reorient the culture according to his righteousness. So it's mercy and justice. You can't have mercy without justice. God is going to bring justice, and that's what we all long for. Justice. To only see the salvation of sinners as good as far as the gospel is concerned and not good because of the justice of God and not good because of the reorientation of the entire societal order is to misunderstand and therefore misrepresent the overall purpose of the coming of the Christ. It is wired into our nature to want to see right things happen. Just think when you see cheating, how do you feel? How do you feel when you see cheating? How do you feel when you see injustices? There's something inside you because you're created in the image of God. There's something inside you that says something's not right. Something's not right. So God is bringing justice once again back into the societal construct. And all of this would be realized after the completion of His atonement, His glorious resurrection, his coronation, his king described in Daniel 7, and the empowerment of his army of saints in AD 33 at the Feast of Pentecost when people are changed overnight. Thinking, justice, mercy, peace, righteousness, joy. That's what we're looking for. In Psalm 96, the psalmist clearly describes what this event signified. In this enthronement psalm, the psalmist makes certain that Israel knows that when the king comes, he will come not only as the conquering king in behalf of and over his people, but he will come to reign over all people and subdue all people. And so he declares in Psalm 96, verse 10, Say among the nations, and that word heathen is literally the Hebrew word nations, Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. In other words, there's going to be a day when we're going to say to the nations that Yahweh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns. So what exactly did this presentation represent? Well, surely it was the presentation of the conquering king who had been prophesied of throughout the ages that he would one day come to realign the world through a redeemed body, his elect. But what did it have in store for those that remained rebels to his majesty? You see, we don't like to think about that. Oh, we might mention hell and damnation and judgment, but we don't like that. That's very uncomfortable because we know that we were once on that side. So what did it have in store? What did this 
presentation that Christ is the king have in store for those that remain rebels to his majesty. In other words, how would the Father through the Son make right what had been made wrong by the fall of Adam and by the continuance of his wicked generation? Because what we have before us today is a continuance of that wicked generation. Because these wicked people believe and make others believe that God can be safely ignored and still be prosperous in the world. You cannot safely ignore God and His law and be prosperous in the world. And remember the seed of the woman. That Christ, that glorious promise of the Christ in Genesis 3 was to crush the seed of the serpent. And we love that because we think in abstracts. But He's going to crush the head of the wicked. That analogy speaks of conquest and yet it is a word picture representing a God who is vengeful against the reprobate to the point where he will actually smash the headship of the entire Adamic race if they refuse to bow to his majesty and obey his law. If they refuse repentance, if they refuse to submit to them to, to his majesty, if they refuse to submit to his majesty, he will destroy them. And to destroy the head, this is why he says he's going to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the head is to destroy the entire being. And so what was the overall comprehensive commission of the promised Messiah? Whenever that question is asked, when people say, well, well why did Jesus come? What was the reason why Jesus really came? Or what are all of the reasons? Is there one reason? Did he just come because he wanted to die on the cross? What were the reasons? What was the overall reason? You see, when that question is asked, the most common answer is that he came to save his people from their sins. And that is absolutely true. But to only go there makes his coming, his sacrifice, and his victorious resurrection all about us, all about man, and not about God. And so, you see, once we have a self-focused answer to the question, why did Jesus come? We become idolaters. Now one might surmise that Christ's victory was to vindicate man. He wants to vindicate man. He wants to save him from the Adamic race. But in reality, Christ's coming was to vindicate God. Was to vindicate His holiness. And God tells us as much through the prophet Ezekiel. Notice carefully, Ezekiel in chapter 36 is going to tell us exactly why God came to save sinners. Exactly why God came to save sinners. Beginning in verse 16, Ezekiel 36. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, these are the people of the Lord and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name. Notice what it doesn't say. I had pity for these people. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't even imply that. You can infer that. I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen wherever they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. 
O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went, and I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you by the new birth before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen. In other words, I'm going to remove you from being like the heathen. I'm going to take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God, and I will also save you from all your uncleannesses. And I will call for the corn, and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree, and the increase of the field, that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourself in your own sight, for your iniquities and for your abominations. But notice verse 32. Not for your sakes do I do this. Even though he does this out of love for us, he's doing it to honor his name. Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. We have to walk humbly before our God, because as God has declared, he's doing it for his glory, and he's loved us, and by that love, he's saving us so that he can be vindicated. It's about God. It's all about God. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God's vindication. It's about God's holiness. Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord God, be it known unto you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your own ways. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be builded. Now notice that last phrase. The waste places will be builded. Who's going to build them? We are. That's called reconstruction. Christian reconstruction. The reconstruction of the societal order, every institution, every person, everything. This should make it perfectly clear that the redemption of God's people is for the vindication of God through the salvation of man. Furthermore, through the work of the regeneration, the world that Adam destroyed is to be rebuilt by the redeemed of God. And that means that the redeemed ought to be culturally conspicuous. And I know... Now, sometimes I want to run away too. I don't want to be involved. I want to throw in. I want to throw in the towel and say, "You know what? Have at it. Eat your own. Just have at it." But that is not what we're called to do. We're to be culturally conspicuous. We're to be culturally conspicuous. We're to be culturally active in the commission of discipling the nations by declaring the kingly majesty of Christ and holding people accountable to ethical sobriety. According to the scripture, therefore, the presentation of the promised Messiah at his triumphal entry into the holy city it was simply more than a declaration that Jesus was the promised king and that he would save his people from their sins. It was a vindication of his majesty. Now Isaiah, in anticipation of the Messiah, paints a completely different picture. A glorious picture of the Savior that many would rather ignore. Consider how Isaiah 
describes the anticipation of the coming king. In Isaiah chapter 63, our Old Covenant reading, the prophet begins with a question that only Christ can answer. And he begins with the question of who, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But really, the oddity here, the curiosity here, is where he's coming from. Know where he's coming from. He's coming from Edom, a wicked nation, a wicked city. Isaiah is identifying the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who is coming from the nation of the Edomites. Now, there's a couple of considerations here that must be considered. Number one, is Jesus simply coming from Edom? If so, how did he get there in the first place? Why did he go there? What was so important about Edom? Is Isaiah insinuating that Jesus had to become an Edomite in order to infiltrate the nation of the Edomites? Is that implied here? Can we infer that here? And if so, what does it mean? If Isaiah is insinuating that Jesus had to become an Edomite in order to infiltrate the nation of Edom... This posits an incredible gospel scenario. Because if this is actually the case, it is yoking Christ with Esau, who is the beginning of the Edomite people, who, as you know, is a type of the reprobate Eden. He's a type of the reprobate Eden. Jacob have I loved. Esau I have hated. You see, whenever anybody tells you Jesus loves everybody, please quote that for them. Because Jesus doesn't love everybody if he could hate one person. And yet, I believe, this is what Jesus had to become. He had to take upon himself the Adamic, or let me put it this way, the Edomite nature of sinful man at his incarnation in order to save a people for himself who are, by nature, Adamic or Edomites. Because we were hated before we were loved. Because as the scripture says, We were enemies of the commonwealth of Israel. Now in the same way as David, who we know is a great type of Christ, had to infiltrate, if you remember, he had to infiltrate the enemy camp of the Philistines, making himself to be like a Philistine mad, out of his mind. I believe so too did Christ have to infiltrate the enemy camp of Adam's fallen race by becoming man and taking upon himself the sin of his people. In David's case, in David's case, he even made out to be insane. He was made out to be insane. He wanted to make himself to be a madman. In Christ's case, by taking upon himself the sin of his people who are by nature insane, madmen, lunatics, he had to become like a madman. And you say, well, wait a minute. Aren't you stretching something? Jesus wasn't like a madman. He wasn't crazy. Understood. Agree. But if he took upon our sin, and we are considered madmen from Scripture, consider what Mark says in Mark's Gospel. While his enemies thought Jesus was a madman, it is interesting that even some of his brethren thought that that might actually be true. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, 21. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, They went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. 
In other words, he's out of his mind. Now I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, when speaking of the doctrine of election, is very clear when he says about Jacob and Esau. God loved Jacob, the saved Israelite, but hated Esau, the reprobate Edomite. So my question is this. When Christ became incarnate, was he not both Jacob and Esau in a very real way? Did God not love him? And yet, because he took upon our sin, did he not reject him? The reason why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in his divine, perfect divinity, he was the elect Israelite of God. But in his Adamic nature, which he had to take upon himself because of our sin, he was the Edomite Esau, the condemned of God. And so, when God looked upon Jesus as his only begotten son, he looked upon him as his elect. But when he looked upon him on the cross, he saw him as the reprobate Esau and deserted him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Isaiah identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who comes from Edom. Now let's consider the description of this Edomite. It's fascinating in verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? Isaiah makes mention of this in an earlier chapter by referring to the city of Bozrah as a city under the wrath of God. This Edomite is coming out of a city that's under the wrath of God. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, it was the city of destruction. It was like a Sodom. In Isaiah 34, verse 6, we read this, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord hath a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. Now, Idumea is simply another name for Edom. So here we see the wrath of God upon Bozrah and where there's a great slaughter in Bozrah. I believe that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jeremiah also refers to this in Jeremiah 48, 21 and following. He says, And judgment is come upon the plain country, upon Holon, and upon Jehazah, and upon Mephata, and upon Debon, and upon Nebo, and upon Death Diblehem, and upon Kirithium, and upon Beth Gemul, and upon Beth Meon, and upon Kiroth, and upon Bozrah, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. Notice the judgment is upon this city. Observe also that the Lord is coming out of the reprobate city of Bozrah, and he's coming out stained with the blood of those people of the city. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Now the end of this portion of the verse shifts from the question to the answer, which is given by none other than Jesus Christ. And the imagery is very clear. Jesus has just returned from a bloodbath, a bloody battle whereby he has gained a total victory, which is marked by his blood-stained apparel. This is the imagery of warfare. He went in against his enemies and he conquered them. And yet Christ does not only return from the battle, he returns in full strength. Notice, glorious in his victory, or the way he puts it, glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. He doesn't only return from the battle, he returns in full strength as if this victory was a cakewalk. 
The Reverend Howe always observes, he says, the former chapter closed with the promise of the Savior's appearing. This opens with the fulfillment of that promise and the glorious victory obtained by the Redeemer over the powers of darkness through his incarnation. Or it points to the overthrow of all the enemies of his church in the final days of the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah, as suddenly surprised with the appearance of this glorious personage, with abrupt inquiry asks, Who is this? Is the form human or divine that I behold? He cometh from Edom, the country of the professed enemies of the church, with dyed garments from Bozrah, like some victorious conqueror who, having sacked the capital of his foes, returns in triumph, his sword yet reeking with the slaughter, and his garments dyed with the blood of the slain. This that is glorious in his apparel, bearing in his person abject and dress the marks of transcendent dignity, traveling in the greatness of his strength, not faint through fatigue nor weary with his march, but with power irresistible and zeal unquenchable, advancing with majestic stateliness to new conquests till every foe becomes his footstool. That is the Jesus who we serve. And that is the Jesus that every church with the steeples and the parapets should be declaring. And that is the Jesus we should be declaring. But we don't like these words because they kind of they not they're not fuzzy enough. They're not snowflakey enough. They're not woke enough. But this is the word of God. This is the Christ whom we serve. And then Isaiah asks Another question. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? In other words, why are your garments blood soaked as someone who is smashing grapes to make wine in the wine press? Now again, the symbolism here points directly to the wine of the atonement. Immediately the answer comes back to the prophet. But this imagery is not what people in a modern church really want to hear. They want to hear about the salvation message. They want to hear that Jesus loves them. But that's not the answer the prophet gives. His answer speaks of violence and vengeance upon the enemies of God. Notice, I have trodden the winepress alone and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger. That's not to us. He's not telling us this. He's telling the wicked this. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. Oh, that's the blood of vengeance that I'm seeing on your vesture. And I will stain all my raiment for the day of vengeance. Notice it doesn't say the day of love. Although, again, it's love to his people. But God is a righteous God. The day of vengeance. This should frighten us to the very core of our being when we believe that we can have our faith lived at the margin and not full bore. We skate. We coast. Well, Jesus loves us anyway. And we don't have to do this. We could do that. We can sin secretly here. We could sin secretly there. This is the God who we serve. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Now, a number of things are set forth here. Number one, Christ did this alone because only he could do it alone. 
The atonement as well as the victory could only be done by God himself, the incarnate God, the Lord Christ. No one helped, no one could help, no one even considered helping. And even if they did consider helping, they were completely inadequate for the job because they were part of the enemy kingdom. Secondly, note Christ's intentions upon the inhabitants of the weird city of Bozrah. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And here we see an angry God against the wicked. God is angry with the wicked every day. And it's, don't, I don't ever want to hear anybody say, God hates the sin, loves the sinner. No, there's some truth there. But he's angry with the sinner that continues to sin. If you're an unrepentant sinner, God is angry with you. We see here an angry God, a God who is jealous over his honor, jealous over his dignity, jealous over his majesty, and ultimately over his purchased bride, who is the bride of Christ, who is bought with the blood of the Savior. Thirdly, note the graphic description of the victorious man of war, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my rim. I'm going to stain my, I'm going to be so, I'm going to be wielding that sword, and that blood is going everywhere. It is a comprehensive victory. As the man of war comes victoriously from the battle, he parades his conquest with undeniable proof. And that proof is the blood of his enemies. And he parades himself here as the undeniable victor. And this is a fearful display. One which should make all of mankind shiver and shake in their beds. And this is what David saw when he contemplated the victorious Messiah and his message to the kings of the earth when he says in his warning, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And perhaps that's why the New Testament church so-called, which is no such thing of course, is fearful of the Old Testament. Say, well, we don't deal with the Old Testament even though it's two-thirds of the Bible. Because they don't know how to understand it because they refuse to see that it's all about God. The Hebrew word used here for angry is actually the word which is translated enraged. Kiss the son lest he be enraged. You know, angry, you know, we get angry once in a while. We don't often get enraged unless you were with us Friday evening. God is enraged with the wicked of the world. And if they do not bow before him in humble contrition, he will slaughter them and he will parade them and their blood-soaked bodies will be on his vesture for all to see as a testimony and a witness against him. Number four, note how Christ defines the entire period of the day of his coming in verse four. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. He's talking about the New Testament age. In the fullness of time, God sends His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those that were under His law, while at the same time destroying the works and the workers of lawlessness. The entire New Testament is dedicated to restoring the honor of God and the entire global order to His majesty. And so when someone says, I love Jesus, and then they do something totally contrary to the Word of God and the true Jesus of the Bible, we need to call them out on it. And you need to police yourselves and you need to call yourselves out on it if you're saying, I love Jesus and he's doing some wacky thing somewhere else that's sinful. I cannot stress to you that life, you know how some of these these musical ditties say, life is just a bowl of cherries, life is but a game. Like, brothers and sisters, 
this is serious, deadly serious business, and I'm deadly serious to tell you this. There's only one way out of this life, and it's through death. But then there's the time after that. And it's one way or the other, depending on your stature here. So God is enraged with the wicked. Vengeance is in his heart. And then notice, he repeats how this great work was initially accomplished and how it will be totally accomplished. Therefore, mine own arm brought salvation unto me. It's about me, says Christ. It's about my honor, my deliverance. Notice, my own arm brought salvation unto me. And that salvation is deliverance. I am being delivered from all of the slander, all of the wickedness. I am going to have my justice because the world is mine. The cattle on the 10,000 hills are mine. They're all mine. Mine own arm brought salvation and deliverance and the restoration of mine honor. Now it's back. I'm getting it back. One of the ways in which his honor is restored is through the testimony of those whom he has redeemed. Christ's entrance into Jerusalem was, was not only testifying that he came as king, but that he came to sit on the throne of his father David, as was prophesied. And this should have brought to mind the history of the Hebrew people under David when he was finally coronated as king over the twelve tribes of Israel when the honor of God was finally restored. And I believe that's the only time that God's honor will finally be restored when only the true church is organized and unified. Not the false church, but the true church. And it was at that time under David when the nation was united that his first order of business, if you remember from 2 Samuel chapter 8, if you remember David's first order of business, once the nations were united, the 12 tribes, his first order of business was conquest. And it came to pass after this that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines and he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even the two lines measured he put to death and one line kept alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. And David smote Hadazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David took from him a thousand chariots and when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor him, David slew them. And he put garrisons here and garrisons there. And he took this from them. And he took that from them. And he went to Bethra and to the other cities. And he took everything from them. The first order of business, once he united the tribes, was he took dominion. He brought order out of chaos. And David got him a name. When he returned from smiting the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And I would just picture David coming from the slaughter. What did he look like? He was drenched. I hope you never have the unpleasant experience of having blood being spewed back at you from something you might be involved in. Police officers have that all the time. Because when you fire a weapon and it hits the body, the blood goes everywhere. But David, when he came back from the slaughter, he was drenched. And he stood there before, I believe, he probably stood there before all of the Israelites and he said, we are victorious for Yahweh. Christ's entrance into the holy city was and is a warning to the leaders of this world 
that the king has arrived and the day of his wrath has come. But what is seldom spoken of, especially in the postmodern, post-Christian age that we're in right now, is the fact that his elect are his threshing instruments. We are the threshing instruments of God. And by the declaration of God's word, we declare war on the Edomites of Bozrah. And at the same time, Christ's victory over them by the grace of God upon the elect. Now there were two responses of Christ's triumphal entry into the holy city. The one response by the people who had become blinded by tradition. They were so entrenched in, in the fact that only Caesars came in in such a way or victorious generals would come in to the holy city in such a way they didn't understand who this Jesus was. They were entirely unfamiliar who Jesus was. Their tradition, their blindness, their, their inability to understand the scriptures had them enslaved to the notion that the state was God. So they're confused. And when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Or, Who dares to ride victoriously, conquering? Who dares to do such a thing? And yet, These were the Jews. They failed to read of David's psalm when he calls upon the Christ to gird up his sword upon his thigh and ride prosperously because of meekness and righteousness. So they didn't know who he was. They had a clue as to the true meaning behind the triumphal entry. But there was another group, those who had followed him, those who understood. They understood who he was. And the multitude said, this is Jesus. Peter understood that. And what he said when he was asked of the Christ, who did men say that I am? Peter, by divine intervention, said that with the Christ. The Son of the living God. And what he was saying was, you are the God of Psalm 2. You are the God of Psalm 45. You are the God of the enthronement Psalms. You are the God of Bozrah that came from Bozrah as the Edomite to cast vengeance upon the wicked. You are that man. And it was at that time that Peter was able to see the entire ramifications of the ever-present king of nations. And what he saw was not only that vengeful God-man, he was also able to see the great physician and the friend of sinners. The man who was also God, who came to redeem his people by his sovereign sacrifice, his sovereign intervention, so that they might become the sons of God. But he also recognized that Jesus was fulfilling so much of the Old Testament. And he was convinced, here he is, finally, has come on the scene of history. After hearing of this great slaughter, whereby Christ had gotten a complete victory in Isaiah 63, a universal victory, We have to look at verse 7. Verse 7 and 8, because that caps off the reason why he wanted vengeance. Because the response from his people is this. After seeing this one coming from Edom, the one coming out of Bozrah with this victorious blood-stained garment, they look upon this man. They look upon that Edomite. And they say, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord 
according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which hath bestowed upon them, according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Truly they are my people, children that will not lie. And so he was their Savior. All because he was willing to put himself as the conquering king. Conquering over his enemies, conquering over sin, conquering over death, conquering over the grave. All because of his love toward us, but for the honor of his name. And so the lesson is really simple. Without a complete victory over the enemies of the gospel, there can be no peace. May God grant to us a myriad of opportunities to declare the truth of his majesty, not only to common folk, but to kings and princes, so that the nations might know that the Lord has come with both blessings and cursings in order to restore the honor of his Father to the realm of men and nations. And this we shall do, God helping us, as God strengthens us unto the praise of the glory of his grace, the glory of his honor. Amen.